From across the pond, this is Off the Record with Big C. And thank you, Shaggy. We're back. Season 3. Episode 61, whichever way you want to look at it. And um, it's good to be back after a two-week absence. One week off after 60 weeks. Wasn't too bad for me. Um, now, season three, we're opening with... We've got Stinky Pete here. Hi, Pete. Hi. Edelsborough. From Edelsborough, of course, in the UK. I, I always forget whether it's Bedfordshire or Buckinghamshire, or it's a bit of both. He has one leg in each county, I think, don't you, still? Buckinghamshire, but the county line is literally down the middle of the road, so the opposite side of the road is Pete's. Excellent, excellent. And, of course, we have a special guest tonight. Um, and it is... Wyatt Endels. I have pronounced that correctly, haven't I? Endels. Or is it Endels? No, it's not, neither. It's Wendels. It, the alliteration is WW. Wendels. Uh, Wendels. Oh, I just call you, well, you could call you Wendy if you like, whichever you want to call Yeah, it. Wendy, Wayne, anything else that's wrong is all right. It's the common oh, denominator. Right. Fair enough. Well, it's yeah. good to meet you anyway. Um, I must say that Pete's mentioned you and Planet Rock probably so many times over the last few weeks and months that it feels like you've been on the show long, more times than my erstwhile co-host slim nick actually um but <laughs> here you that. are actually finally on the show so it is um wendy wyatt whatever he wants to call himself um musician radio presenter actor mm. cyclist world traveler i mean there's so many yeah. things that uh, you have on your resume but it's good to meet you and thanks for coming on you too nice to be here Good, good. We have a topic. You know what it is. Um, and it's an interesting one and a very tricky one, actually, I found, um, of bands or artists that we think should have been bigger, which is the crux of the matter. Uh, how we decide that is, is another matter, but bigger than maybe they actually were. Um, now, actually, two weeks ago, before we get on to the first ones, Two weeks ago, we the last show we did, the finale of season two, we talked about albums from 1975, and I, for the occasion, in tribute, wore my Led Zeppelin physical graffiti shirt. Now, this week, it doesn't show on the on Spotify, oh, but I had my Simon. Bridge Over Troubled Water, yeah, Bridge yeah, Over Troubled Water, Simon, Simon and Garfunkel shirt. Not that there's any link whatsoever with, with tonight's topic. I just wanted to say that. Um, no one could say Simon and Garfunkel could have been any bigger. Um, well, taller maybe in Paul Simon's case, I guess. Um, but we won't hold that against him. Um, anyway, why do you want to tell us a bit about yourself then? Because obviously, and to me, you know, what I mean, I've yeah. got Pete, you know, how the hell did you get to know this, Herbert Pete? Well, we uh, we met through the medium of radio, so I've been at Planet Rock coming up on 10 years on August the 11th, and about six, seven years ago, we started doing this thing where we decided the presenters didn't want to do every weekend and bank holidays. So we'd let presenters present an hour of their music. And uh, Pete was one of those Herberts that we let in. And in fairness to Pete, he was one of the better ones. Cause I've got to be honest, the quality control was poor. Yeah. Um, it's amazing. It's it, it, everyone thinks radio is easy. Everyone thinks people, Oh, I can talk. Yeah, I can do it. And everyone who enters this or entered it, it's still going to this, to this day, but we do it once a year rather than two or three times a year. 
it never ceased to amaze me how they would get in a room and you go, okay, you're up. And they just, the fear of God on them. And I, I had people literally say to me, well, I have to talk. Can't you do it? They actually thought they were coming into a real life working museum and they could just watch or somehow <laughs> we would magically make them sound great without them speaking. Um, and, and Pete was one of those a few years ago. And we just got, you know, talking in the online world, all things music and Tottenham and fast forward a few years. Here we are. Music, Tottenham, where, where do they stand together? I mean, which one's above the other? Well, I, I'd have to put music above it, yes. if, if I'm completely honest, because I make a living out of music. I don't make That's a living enough. out of Tottenham. In fact, it, it's likely to put me in an early grave, if anything. <laughs> so, yeah, m- music, just about. But yeah, sport and football for me, uh, music and football, you know, they're the two main things in life. Well, Spurs? Forget kids and family. Mm-hmm. Don't need not going too badly for Spurs at the moment, is it? In terms of transfers and no, stuff. No, not too bad. No. There is that. Um, and I have to temper that with the fact that it's the most expensive club in the world. I say in the world, is no doubt it's the most expensive club in Europe and therefore it might as well be the world. I doubt they're more expensive in the States and where else is going to be more expensive? I mean, it is it is bordering on silly money. You know, mm. that my son's child season ticket in the North Upper is more expensive than the most expensive adult ticket, Old Trafford. So, you know, really? that's, that's the sort that's of season bizarre. money you're dealing with. I know. That is bizarre. Do you have a season ticket? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I had one in the early day, uh, the old days of White Hart Lane, sort of mid 2000s. Then it got too expensive. So I let it go. Mm-hmm. And then I went on a sort of eight year waiting list. I thought, oh, I'll probably get it in the next 10 years. Of course, we moved to the new stadium and then, um, then me and my son just sort of got it like that. And I'm like, oh, I'm obliged now. If I say no now, I'll have another 10-year wait. So, uh, you know, I'm always looking for Spurs fans to join my network because I won't be able to make all the games. It's a bit of a commute from Yorkshire, so feel free, you know, add me to your network. Any friends that can't make it because it's easy to, it, yeah. easy to dish tickets out when you're in the, the network. Well, I'm, I'm, I've, I'm, I've had a season ticket now probably since about 1980. Five eighty-six time, probably something like that. Yeah. So many times you think, oh. I, I, I was getting a bit despondent. I must admit, the last year or so, and I was thinking, shall I renew? Shall I? Mm. All the all the Nuno and the Mourinho and the just depressing results. I mean, it's all right playing a boring style of football, but if you never win any games, yeah, that's just the, you know that's the end of it, isn't it? Really? Yeah. Well, you're going back to the days of the proper shelf with the pylon floodlights and everything. Yeah, that was those, those thems were the days. Yeah. Which was the first game you went to, Cole? When was it? First game, I believe, was the aforementioned, well, we didn't mention the team, Old Trafford, but I think it was a cup tie involved at White Hart Lane against Manchester United. That was my first. I no, think I was it was a, my first one was also Man United. No way. So was mine. Yeah. February, yeah, my, February 68, mine was. Mine was April 87. And so it was the early days of Alex Ferguson. It was the penultimate home game before the 87 Cup final. We beat them 4 0. Mitchell Thomas scored. Blimey. Good grief. Good grief. My my first game, we lost 2 1. George Best and Bobby Charlton scored for them, and Martin Chivers scored for us. Wow. They still will Martin out a few times a year. Yeah, he's good fun. He's a nice. But the UEFA Cup final in 84, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Against uh, Anderlecht, probably Anderlecht. 
still that Graham Roberts goal is the one I, I treasure more than any other, actually. I think still. <laughs> and I still think they should go back to having a two-legged European final home and away. It's, it's just a different setup. It's yeah. just, mm. you know, yeah. um, or even even do that in the domestic league cup. That 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 is ripe for an overhaul. I mean, we still have that ridiculous two-legged semi-final, which is an overhang from the days where you had two-legged games in the first and second round. Well, they potted them off. Yep. But they still have a, what is essentially just some random two-legged semi-final, which actually doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Make no, it a no. two-legged final, home and away. That would make yeah, sense. Yeah. yeah, true. It gives us an extra game because generally we qualify for the League Cup. We go into like a round later than everybody else. And we have yeah. you know, we get to the final in about two or three games, don't we? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, and then regularly lose, as I recall. And then regularly <laughs> lose. <laughs> yeah. 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 The yeah. semi-finals are one we normally lose, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. On the, on the subject the uh, things that should have been bigger than they were, Tottenham. Anyway, yes. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. All right, and enough, enough football talk. Um, let's get on to the subject matter. And as I said at the start, I think this is a, a tricky thing that we say should have been bigger than they really were. It's sort of the, like, it was almost like the opposite, is it, of a show we had recently where we said that the bands that were overrated in a way. I mean, are these the ones that are underrated? Discuss. Well, I, I've said this before. I've said this many times. I've had this bone of contention with people because it, it does come down to quite literally a top Trump's personal rating card. And I have, mm. I have encountered, and I do on a near weekly basis, the amount of people that will say to me in person, uh, online or whatever, that, Oh, this band should be huge. Insert what is essentially a club band now. Or they'll refer to what was a club band in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Now, so they should have been huge. And my reaction is pretty much per se always the same. What are you basing it on? And I will guarantee you 99 times out of 100, it's based on nothing more than their personal opinion of that band. This band should be huge because I like them. I rate them. They've got no... No financial, no kind of technical, logistical basis for saying they should be huge other than it's not like they turn around and say, and this kind of plays into one of the bands I've mentioned. It's not like they could say, well, if the singer hadn't died or this hadn't happened, they would have been huge because they were going to play stadiums. It's always, and if, if you say it or you meet someone who says that, I will pretty much guarantee it will always be, it's nothing more than I really like them. I mean, in recent years, nearly four years to the day, I had someone say to me, mark my words, Massive Wagons will be a main stage download headliner within five years. That was based on the fact that they really liked them. Well, four years later, Massive Wagons played lunchtime on the second stage. So unless they have some humongous kind of Guns N' Roses style launch in the next 11 and a half months, they ain't going to be headlining download next year. And that is said without any hint of deadpan irony, people really mean that. And, and it comes down to just conscious bias. I really like this band, so they should be huge, which is that weird um, opposite end of the scale to the people who say, I hate that band, they sold out, which means the band they like sold loads of records and got really big and people don't appreciate that. This is the absolute opposite of that, mm. when people think bands should be huge because I like them. And mm. that's pretty much what it is. Is that generally, though, because people, are pretty stupid. Yeah. <laughs> people, and it is. People are cloth in. 
You know what I mean? They, <laughs> don't they, give they don't know. the opportunity to say what, that people stupid have I got? I mean, I, <laughs> I'd put myself in that category probably. And I would, I mean, what, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I always have discussion with Pete about you know, the music that he likes and the, the music that I like. I like pretty much everything in, in, in maybe smaller doses with some. But, you know, the, the skill level, the, the, the artistry, the, the, the guitar playing, the drum playing, as you're, you're a drummer yourself, why aren't you? You're not. Yep. Uh, we still got to have a drum, a best drummer show, actually, one day. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm not, and, you know, whether they're good on the fiddle or whatever, or the, the, the orchestra, I, I'm not intelligent enough, clever enough, or aware enough, probably, to know. So all I've got to go by is, yeah, do I like this or not? You know, it's, yeah. well, it's like not a question of aesthetics it's like personal subjectivity isn't it yeah well let me ask you this both of you okay if if you think a band should be bigger than they are and it's not based on your personal opinion of this band what is your other criteria for assuming or asserting that they should be commercially huge and that often if i put that on anyone they're like uh Okay, eliminate the fact that you like this band, you enjoy listening to them. Give me a commercial reason, a viable reason, based in, if not logic, business, yada, 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 why this band should be bigger. And that's not me being condescending or patronised. That is a genuine throwback. It's okay, beyond you liking this band, what else you got? I, I get that. Um, I would say uh, bands, albums can be critically really well received for for example um and yet after the one album maybe two one and a half perhaps then they just fall fall by the wayside uh i don't know maybe they should have been bigger um whether they're maybe a big influence on other artists maybe along the way um yeah that's something i should factor into it um, but I must admit, when I look at I, I look at the list I've made, uh, and that, that I haven't got anyone in that I don't like. Let's put it that way. Well, I have um, interestingly. That will surprise Pete. One of them I've gone for, but all the four I've gone with have all got differing reasons, which kind of tie in and connect and relate to the very things that we're talking about—the hows and whys and why nots. So it's not just a fishing expedition and a load of bands I like who I think mm. should have been bigger bar one but there's a reason well, everything the, i've everything really i've got is based in foundation yeah sorry no, that's really no 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 that's really interesting because I, I i would say pretty well the same thing i've got one band i've i've got six i've got one band out of the six who i really like and i think they should have been bigger because i really like them but and but that's my and and, and so that's my one that I've thrown in and it's kind of like number six. Um, but actually the one I've chosen as my, as my top pick, I think ticks a lot of the other boxes. So critically acclaimed, absolutely lauded by other people, loads and loads of stuff covered by other people much, much more successfully. And this is a person who just maybe made some bad decisions Maybe there was some bad management. Maybe it better not be Morrissey. <laughs> maybe that no, don't don't start me on him. Um, didn't get the breaks, um, and should have done. 
and stands up against in comparison with anybody else of the genre. So, so I've, I've got one who I, I have no idea, apart from some of the decisions, I've got no idea why they weren't absolutely mega. Um, because on the face of it, absolutely should have been. Um, but and then the others I've kind of tried and looked at and think, you know, well, I think these guys probably have not been managed very well. Um, and actually, that's probably the one you and I've got in common. Um, and then there's others where I've just thought, well, for various reasons, like hubris, for example, they weren't as they weren't as successful as they should have been. In other words, they believed their own press and dropped the ball. And mm-hmm. you look back and you go, if you hadn't have done that, you'd have been much more successful than you were. It's your own fault, but your talent says that you should have done more than you did. So, is that another, is that another band like Genesis? <laughs> yes, yes, their Genesis is a backing band. Yeah, you know, it's like that a tribute band. Still, it's kind of like this thing about it's this kind of thing about believing your own press. You know, if you if you keep on telling yourself that you're wonderful, then maybe it catches up with you. You know, karma, whatever. That's when do we start revealing these? We're alluding well, to. I think we'll, we might as well start with you, White. I think because you're going to have some. Well, I, I was going to say, sure. Pete's just. I have a feeling he's not. That one is not going to be mine. So I, he's got more than me. So lead with that one you alluded to, Pete. Go on, Pete. The one where well, you said that person. You were alluding to a person, and I said not Morrissey. No. All right. All right. Well, so let's see if you get this one, Cole. I'll um I'll I'll tell you the background. Okay. So it's a it's a female singer. Okay. Kate Bush. Oh, piss off. <laughs> Can we... Right, no, sorry. I have to nail this now. She's what, number one, what, man. She's number one this week. What were people thinking? Anyway, don't go down that route. No, right. Stop annoying me. Uh, <laughs> so, American, okay? Ukrainian, Polish, Jewish on one side of the family. Italian-American on the other side of the family. Did jazz, soul, rock, R&B, doo-wop, and pop. Singer, songwriter, pianist. Born in the Bronx. And died, sadly, of ovarian cancer at the age of 49. It's not Pat Bennett, are they? <laughs> no, no. She should have been smaller than she was. Let's not have that conversation. No, I was heading, I was heading down like a, I don't know. I didn't know where she was. Born, I was heading down like a Nora Jones sort of uh, avenue there. I don't know why. Nora Jones has been relatively successful. Okay, I'll put you out of your misery. Um, Laura Nairo, Laura Nero. Okay. okay. So she is massively critically acclaimed um, and had ma- really huge commercial success for lots of other people. So a little, a little bit of background... So 1968, she released Eli and the 13th Confession. And then in 1969, New York Tenderbury, um, both of which were critically acclaimed. They are her, uh, they're her two great albums. I mean, she's, I think she's brilliant, but they're her two great albums. Um, and she had, she wrote so many songs, which then became um, big hits for other people. So, in between 1968 and 1970, her songs as follows. Blowing Away, Wedding Bell Blues, Stone Soul Picnic, Sweet Blindness, Save the Country, All by Fifth Dimension. 
When I Die by Blood, Sweat and Tears and Peter, Paul and Mary, Eli's Coming, Three Dog Night and Maynard Ferguson, Stony End, Time and Love, Hands of the Man, Barbara Streisand. So, you know, like all hit songs. Her biggest selling single was one she didn't write herself. It was King, uh, Carol King and uh, Jerry Goffin's Up on the Roof. Now, posthumously, she was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2010. She was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2012. And if you watch, the, 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 um, the induction was done by Bette Midler, and it's the most emotional 10 minutes you ever watch. And I, and I just and I look at her and I look at her back catalogue, um, and then you look at the people. She was absolutely idolised by Elton John. If you, Anything Elton John talks about people who influenced him, Laura Niro is always there. And Todd Rundgren famously said that when he, he, he changed his writing style when he heard Laura Niro. And, uh, you know, he said, I heard her and I changed the way I wrote music. Um, and, you know, June 67, she played at Monterey with Hendrix the Who, Big Brother. But it was Big Brother that became big after Monterey. So it was like Janis Joplin rather than her. Um, she played Carnegie Hall. She played with Duane Orman, an album, uh, Christmas and the Beads of Sweat, 1970, with Duane Orman and the Muscle Shoal Horns. Her biggest success was going to take a miracle, which is um, her Teenage Heartbreak songs. So it's kind of like uh, it's a covers album, and that's really weird. So like her biggest commercial success was not her own stuff, when her own stuff was taken by everybody else and made into big hits. And basically she retired in 1971 at the age of 24 and said, sod it, I've not done what I wanted to do. And she kept on doing stuff and she came back later on, not long before she died, and there was a few other albums. Um, she she went out with Jackson Brown and she got kind of tying the Laurel Canyon set. Um, and she wasn't, you know, she was a girl from the Bronx. But if you listen to any of her stuff, she's absolutely brilliant. And she should be there with Joni Mitchell and Carol King and Linda Ronstadt and all of those great female, Bellamy Lou Harris, and she just isn't. And I've never understood why. She's bloody brilliant. Was she less, uh, I would say, like Linda Ronstadt? Um, who are the other ones you mentioned as well there? Linda Ronstadt? Joni and Carol Joni. King. And, yeah, well, they, the and Carol King, yeah. Um, they presumably were more commercial, sound, more commercially sounding yeah, maybe. than Laura Nairo. But was, was Janis Joplin commercial? Well, well, Big Brother big, actually. I mean, they, they weren't no, around no, for they, long No, enough. but they, they didn't say they were Big Brother were big. What they said, what he said was that, that it was Big Brother and therefore Janis Joplin who made the breakthrough as a result of playing mm. Monterey, whereas she didn't. So anyway, that's for what it's worth, that, that's the one that always, when, we had, when Wyatt and I had the conversation a few weeks ago, which was probably what sparked this off, she was one of the ones who automatically leapt to mind. She should have been huge in the Carol and 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 uh, Joni Mitchell thing, and she mm. just wasn't. But she's brilliant. Right. Listen to Eli, any of that stuff. Eli and the Thirteenth Confession. That's right, isn't it? That's what it's called. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's the album that I always. It's always yeah. up there and list of greatest albums and stuff, yeah, it isn't is. it? But yeah, it, it wasn't a massive hit, as, no. as you, I suppose is is the point, really. Exactly. Uh, um, in fact, that only got. To number 181 in the US. The follow up got to number 32, which was a New York 
Tenderberry. Yeah, Tenderberry. Well, uh, they're, they're the no, two she's famous. But none for. of the others, none of the others were hits. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so there we go. That's me. An interesting choice. Left sir. Why? Any comments on that? I, I, in all honesty, I know of her. I, I don't know enough about her to 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 comment. To re- yeah, to really comment. I, I think the no, valid. I, re- I don't know. I, I, yeah, it's a that. weird one. Based on that, I, that must just be bad luck, bad timing. Other people in front of the queue got yeah. the glory. That mm. that sounds like one of those cases. Just well, she went out. She went out with David Geffen after she split up with Jackson Brown. And when she and when she packed up was after she'd split up with Geffen, and he said, you know, it was the worst time of time of his life because he'd split up with her, and you know he was going out with her, and she was this, you know, major talent. So, mm-hmm. but I mean, she's her stuff's all over YouTube. I spent about an hour and a half watching it the night before last when I was prepping and thinking about this and thinking, well, is this fair? Um, and having watched an hour and a half of it on YouTube, I thought, yeah, it is. So there's plenty on there. Okay, shall I throw in one here then? Or do you want to go in white? No, no, throw away. I'm just thinking, I, one of the ones I've got written down here were in were actually a, um, a Welsh band. And you might get a feel of how, how my list is going to go from this, I don't know. Um, they were, they did have some success, but again, that's a criteria I had, was that they had success, they, they might have had a few hit singles, but... A lot of these artists I've got down here, if you ask someone on the street, they probably won't have heard of them, uh, which is another thing I might have thought about when I was writing them down. This band were originally in the 60s. They were originally called the Ivies. Man. Is it Man? Manfred Man. No, no man. it's not Man. No, oh, no, 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 it's not Man. No. Um, no, they weren't. They were the actually the first group signed to the Beatles Apple label uh, in 1968. Uh, They changed the name of the band uh, and they named it after the, actually after the working title of the Beatles with a little help from my friends, which when originally recorded was called Bad Finger Boogie. Ah, Bad Finger. So yeah, the band is Badfinger, and I, I know that they've had a, an awful amount of bad luck, or they did have um, along the way. But like Laura, Laura Nairo, you were saying, Pete, they had some success of their own, but their biggest success was a song that they wrote that other people had massive hits with it. I mean, it, it their first hit was actually um, Paul McCartney song uh which he demoed for them uh, for the magic christian music movie a uh, magic christian movie sorry i think it was the album was called magic christian music um and it was called come and get it so it's basically just an exact copy of mccartney's demo right. uh, the, if you, you can have this song but you got exactly like my demo here it's just a piano and what have you um, and they did, and it, and it made number two in the chart in the UK, and number four, sorry, in the UK, number seven in the US. Um, after that, they had a, a sprinkling of hits, probably better in America than they were here in terms of chart success. Um, 
Baby Blue got a bit of airplay and sales after it appeared in the final scenes of the rather Breaking excellent Bad. series. I must say, Breaking Bad. Yeah, um, great, great song. Um, but their, their biggest song, and, and Pete Ham and and Tom Evans were were great songwriters. Actually, I thought, um, apart from uh, apart from um, the one I mentioned there, Baby Blue, uh, no matter what, day after day. Um, but but that was really about it. One of the songs on their, I think their No Dice album, was they didn't record as a single. At least if they did, it wasn't a hit. Um, but two artists ended up having a, a massive number one hit with it. Um, and that song was called Without You. Oh, the Harry Nilsson. Harry Nilsson yeah. yeah. took to number one in 72, um, uh, maybe late 71 in the States, but it was 72 here. Absolutely stunning song, in my view. Um, and, of course, Mariah Carey, yeah. sorry, uh, Mariah Carey <laughs> took it to number one as well. Um, she performed her vocal gymnastics on it, no doubt. Um, but it, it was a massive hit. So that that, that sort of that, that two biggest hits. One um, was, well, their biggest hit chart-wise was a song they didn't write, which was Come and Get It by McCartney. And their biggest ever success was Without You. And it was actually not by them. In the end, it was recorded by Nielsen and Mariah Carey. And of course they had all sorts of money troubles um, that I think the manager was sued by Warner brothers. I think it was because some, uh, an advance disappeared. Um, and sadly, of course, Pete Ham ended up thinking that all of his wealth had been whittled, uh, whatever the word is, frittered away. Um, Ended up committing suicide in seventy-five. Yeah. yeah, and then Tom Evans, who, um, well, actually, yeah. I mean, I was right. I wrote down on a morbid note. Yeah, Pete Ham is his final his suicide note was, "I will not be allowed to love and trust everybody. This is better, Pete." P.S. Stan, I can't read his writing, but the manager Stan Pollen, Stan Polly, is a soulless bastard. I will take him with me. Uh, but he did then also go to say that he loved his girlfriend and her son. But, yeah, that was it for him. And it wasn't long, uh, I say long, probably about eight years later, Tom Evans took his own life as well. Yeah. Um, so a sad, a sad tale. I think the night before I was reading, the night before he committed suicide, he hung himself from a tree, I think it was. Um, he'd been arguing with a former bandmate, about over royalties for without you, funnily enough, the, the day before or the night before. But I, I just think if you listen to some their stuff, they didn't produce that many, obviously with two of them disappearing, but I thought they were a great band. I know it's one I like, but I just think they should have been, they should have been bigger. Bad finger. That's my first one. What? I'm starting lowbrow, to be honest. Um, Go on. And like I said, I've got theories uh, on why bands haven't done well. I grew up, so my formative music years, you're talking the early to mid 80s. So I had that, I, I was growing up in the shadow of your Dio's, your Judas Priest, which gave way to the mid 80s, which was the glam scene, Motley Crue, of course. And there was a raft of party bands 
but you you could call them that from the late 80s and this uh this hollywood california band debuted in 1990 and it's love hate and they brought out their debut album was blackout in the red room and blackout in the red room was was and still is their biggest song it's, it's still played on the radio a lot i think it's got like 11 tracks on it it must be all of 31 minutes and it's just bubblegum party rock music glammy filthy it's about drugs there are other big song which it would never be recorded this way it certainly it wouldn't even make it to radio now it's called why do you think they call it dope uh mm-hmm. and it, 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 it although marijuana is a, a class b drug you cannot in the radio world now positively reference drug use uh it, it can't be played during the day for example blackstone cherries me and mary jane will never get played during the day because it's not just talking about drugs it's using a positive enforcement of it, which is, you know, why do they, why do you think they call it dope was the, one of the two big singles off that album. And then they had wasted America in 1992, which was a follow-up, which had the song wasted in America. They were um, evil twin. That still gets played a lot. There was um, big tours that, I mean, they were playing, I guess I should qualify even in the first two albums, they were playing the marquee and they, they sold out uh, the London Astoria which is no mean feat. And they, I remember when Radio 1 used to have the rock show and Tommy Vance, they put on this series of American shows in the early 90s, around 91, they put on all these bands from usually the West Coast. So The Scream with John Carabi, pre-Motley Crew would play it. Love, Hate were one of them. And then they released the third album in 1993 and we're still selling out the Astoria. But I've thought about this. If that band had the same material, but had released it three or four years earlier, only three or four years early, maybe even two or three years early, they'd have been selling out Hammersmith and doing the bigger sort of auditoriums. And the reason they didn't is because at the same time, less than a year after their debut release, Smells Like Teen Spirit came out. And then essentially the Holocaust for many glam, sleaze, party bands, it was just a downward trajectory from 92 onwards. So this is one of those, I like that they're unashamedly easily accessible it's not intelligent music it's not there's no substance to the lyrics you know it's just it's one of those sing along to the chorus type. it's a kind of band that set a template for steel panther um, i was just gonna say i was thought that you steel panther comes yeah that it's that kind of template and whilst they did have success and they still have plenty of radio play they should have been bigger and the reason they aren't is because grunge wiped them out and it's one of those i'm sure if you spoke to jizzy pearl what weird name for a singer who's still on the circuit doing his love-hate gigs in and around the UK, he would also concede if we just brought our debut out even two years earlier, that had been bigger. That had still been wiped out by grunge, no doubt about mm. it. But they've but, had some, they've had a yeah. the time in the sun. So, yeah, they, had a, they, they could have had more sunbathing hours if they were just yes. two or three years earlier. <laughs> well, Blackout in the Red Room is a great singer. I mean, that's, and I, I didn't hear it until I heard it on Planet Rock. I've never heard of Love Hate, but actually... Yep when that gets played now, I think this is a real good sing-along. This is something you sing in the car, isn't it, on a long journey? Yeah, and, and that's what that's what all their albums were. I couldn't tell you an album after their third one. Uh, we, we just They just capitulated. That was a grunge. It was no fault of their own. They had, they had one in, they've had one in 2022, according to this. Um, well, yeah, it's not the original 90, lineup. No, well, yeah, probably not. Yeah, 90, Blackout in a Red Room, UK didn't chart. Uh, and... It made 154 in the US, it's a Billboard 200, I guess. Uh, and then Wasted in America, 92, that 
what that peaked at 20. Yeah. Which wasn't too bad. And then Let's Rumble was 93, the third, and that, that was at 24. Nothing after that, though. But they yep. did have other albums. I'm Not Happy in 95, Living Off Layla in 97, Let's Eat. I like the sound of that. In 1999 yep. <laughs> and 2017, Before the Blackout. And then 2022, I presume this is Hell, California. It's just Hell CA. Yeah. That's the, it's the name of the song on the first album. But you can see right oh, there, right, okay. can, they dropped off a cliff in 93 because grunge waylaid all those kind of bands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they just didn't have enough behind them to make a, a comeback or, you know, on even the nostalgia circuit. They it, they were done. Stick a fork in them. They, they were toast. But they that material would have been just as accessible in 1988 or 1987. So if they were just two or three years later, they'd have probably played the likes of Hammers with Odeon. Probably got mm. a fourth album out of the deal, and, and you know would have had a would have had more success. They wouldn't have got to Motley Crue heights, but they'd have had more. I'm sure of it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Okay, yeah, love hate. Well, there we go. Back to you, Stinks. Well, okay, I'm going with um, I'm going with the Tom Robinson band. You've got um, to mention them though. You've got to mention them each week though. You do love like Tom Robinson. I haven't. I've, I've, it's not like you and the Bleeding Beatles. You've managed to get them in about 15 times. You've only been <laughs> anyway, um, sorry, I, I, no disrespect intended to the Beatles. Um, I've, chosen, I've chosen TRB partly because of the kind of vague association with them, but also just because uh, what I like about Tom Robinson is that he's very, very realistic. And if you read the sleeve notes to the um, Rising Free, which is the kind of the, 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 the compilation album, which is basically Power in the Darkness plus the Rising Free EP, he's very honest about what happened. You know, he said, basically, when we started, we played pubs, clubs, churchills, schools, prisons, anywhere that would have us. Um, I got away with having a mockney accent. We wrote all these sing-along tunes, you know, 2468, Grey Cortina, Glad to be Gay, Don't Take No for an Answer. Interestingly, I, I mean, you know, I, I read Melody Maker, not the NME, and because I thought NME was kind of like the crap version of the music press. Um, but Julie Burchill, who is uh, uh, one of those oh, people oh, you, either yeah, love yeah. Or, you either love her or you hate her, um, and she, she did a really favourable review of them very, very early doors, um, and there was this massive press and media hysteria around TRB. Um, and as he says, it kind of took them from the Finsbury Park Dole office to top of the pops in less than nine months. Um, and with a lot of support from EMI, you know, they got 2468 into the charts. It went to number four in October 77. And then for me, and, and I mean, part of this is because I was there, but in 1978, they headlined... Rock Against Racism in Victoria Park. 80,000 people with Steel Pulse and The Clash, although, as I, think, as I said before, I don't remember The Clash being there, so we obviously got there late. Um, and um, and that was kind of like within literally 12 months of them starting, that was the zenith of their career. And, and he makes the point, he says, were we exploiting our popularity to further human rights or were we exploiting human rights to further our popularity? And very shortly after that, after two hit singles, this 
massive maelstrom of media hype. Um, he says, you know, we all turned into experts on each other's musicianship. Um, egos ran out of control even before Power in the Darkness was actually released. Um, and, you know, I think he says, you know, we were a really tight little band. Danny Custo is an absolutely brilliant guitarist, um, but we weren't that good, you know. Um, and then the second album got absolutely savaged by the media. The um, the drummer Dolphin Taylor bailed. The keyboard player Mark Ambler bailed. They carried on for another six months and then kind of shot it in the head. Um, reformed in 1989, collapsed within 12 months, and that was all over. And, I mean, Tom Robinson's had a reasonably successful solo career, um, and I've seen him live a few times, and he does all his TRB stuff. And he had a couple of hits, didn't he? Was it um, Atmospherics and on the radio? That was like in the 90s. They were both hit singles. Um, but I just think if they'd been... Part of it, I think, was because they came in at the same time as all the punk stuff was going on. And so they, were, they weren't punk. They were new wave, but they were angry. And I, I think I've said this before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think if they'd been managed properly... And, and I mean, I don't know what the management situation was. EMI clearly did a great job of promoting the album. But if they'd been managed properly, I think they would have stood the test of time. And I think they would have been like the jam and, and you know, bands that matured like The Clash did and like The Stranglers did. But they kind of were one of those bands which were one album, fizzed like a Roman candle and then died kind of things. Mm. And I just think that they were better than that. There we go. That's my number two. You mentioned Dolphin Taylor. Is that, I presume, is the same guy that drummed for uh, Stiff Little Fingers as well? Yes, that's right. Yeah, he did go. Stiff Little Fingers, yeah, when their original drummer, I think it was Brian Falloon. Um, I think you're two for two, Pete, with genuine bad bad timing and bad luck. They're actually valid points rather than they should be bigger because I like them. Well, I mean, I really do like them. And the fact that so yeah, yeah. she's his older sister was my university flatmate for a week, um, obviously made me disposed, well disposed towards them before it started. But no, yeah. I just think they're a really good band. Yeah. And interestingly, I went to see them because Danny Custo died of cancer and they did a benefit gig uh, where they had all of the, um, like the surgeons from the hospital. It was that they were raising money. And I went because Jeff Kaplan who is a massive Tom Robinson fan as well. We both went and they played, what's that little venue in King's Cross? Tiny little place. Scala. The Scala, yeah. So that's they were at the Scala. That's not tiny. That's well, was a good few hundred, that. Well, I mean, what, four or five hundred probably, yeah. was it? Yeah. Well, I mean, so he played the Scala and... Um, it's very tall, though, to be fair. What? You are t- you are very tall, so maybe it does look, uh, it does look smaller <laughs> yes, than it actually is. Um, so... Uh, and they were brilliant, you know, and they, and they, it was really heartfelt. And, and they'd rewritten all of the lyrics for all of the angry political songs. They'd re- rewritten them for the current Tory government. And so they kind of made it re- really relevant as well. And they've still really got it. I just think it was really sad that they didn't have a better career. Anyway, there we go. That's my number two. Okay. Um, right. Well, I'm going to go back. As you know, I'm a bit of a punk fan. Don't know, how do you stand on the punk scene, uh, Wyatt, as a matter of interest? I, uh, it's not for me, but I've always taken the view, I appreciate and respect his place in the music community, and I'm not adverse to it at all. I, I've actually grown to like The Stranglers a lot more in, in recent years, but more the hits. 
And that's as much of the fact that Dave Greenfield should have been in a prog band. He was playing more like Rick Wakeman than a punk yeah. rocker. They, you know, they was, were like real good musicians for a punk They band. were. They I, I said that to JJ Benoit in an interview um, last year. I said, this is all that swirling psychedelia. He said, he was out of, that wasn't punk at all. He, he added this mm. kind of, it was like fusion. It was like prog punk fusion the way. He, mm. But so, yeah, so I don't have a problem with punk per se. It's not really for me, but I don't, you know, I don't dismiss it or anything like that. Okay, well, one of, maybe one of the forerunners of punk rock then I'm thinking about here. A um, bit of a garage rock band started in late 60s in, I think, California. Well, maybe, I may be wrong with that, but it sounds like they should have been. Uh, the, maybe the co-founders, Cyril Jordan and Roy Loney, uh, they had produced two or three albums that flopped, uh, the last of which was Teenage Head. Do you know that album? Either no, of you? No. Right. Do we do okay. Um, well, the band are the Flaming Groovies. And if you ask, and I don't you know whether or not you, you know, do you know the Flaming Groovies? Anything no, about them? I, no, in all honesty. No. And you, Pete? I know of them, know nothing about this, them. I think this is probably the point then, really. I think they should have been, they should have been bigger. <laughs> um, that's my view anyway. <laughs> um, various reasons. I mean, one one of the things they they did the three albums which weren't particularly successful. One of the founder members left, brought in another guy, but then they they sort of more uh, that led towards a a sort of British invasion power pop sort of sound to their. Um, I mean, their best album probably was released. Sire signed them in '76. Sire Records. Um, their best album then was Shake Some Action. They called it Rockfield. Dave Edmonds was the producer. Um, great, it's a great album. Um, it, the title track actually was a single. It wasn't a hit, obviously. became a bit of a power pop anthem. Um, it received rave critical reviews at the time. Similar, actually, Teenage Head did as well, the previous one. Um, but they, they, they weren't successful. I mean, in 76, they they were actually supported by um, the Ramones and, funny you mentioned, but the Stranglers at the uh, the Roundhouse. And I think, I believe, that that might have been, been the first time the Stranglers had performed. Um, they did have a single, Slow Death, just before Shake Some Action. It was an anti-drug song, but... It was banned by the BBC for their use of the word morphine in the lyrics. Um, so that sort of killed its momentum. Uh, a follow-up to Shake Some Action, which was the now, Flaming Groovies now. I did do a lot of, it was very sort of Beatlesque, actually. There's another mention for you, Pete. Um, I, I never saw that one coming, Colin. Never. <laughs> uh, a few there's a couple of Beatles covers actually on the now album um, and birds, very birds, twangy, twangy guitars. Um, and then they had one more album jumping in the night and then Sire dropped them. Like a lot of these bands, I've had a lot of reunions over the years uh, up until maybe 2019. Um, Shake Some Action album actually was their only hit album in the US in inverted commas. It did get to 142 in the US. Um, but the Flaming Groovies, I think, again, I think they were quite a big big, big influence in the late 60s. 
uh, on some other bands of that ilk. But again, I do like them. So I've really let the side down again. By by picking an artist that I do like, I think no, yeah. I, think well, I really like. think they should have been bigger, bigger. <laughs> anyway, that's me done for that one. Right, go on in what what you got? I've gone with a band I don't particularly like. I, I've uh, this will probably surprise Pete. I have gone with a band that on one hand I I could say well, I think they're overrated. I think on one hand you could say they're overrated. And, you know, maybe this, the ethos of the scene was built up so much that it was like, okay, when it's all said and done, was he all that? But then I can take it back and say, okay, well, let's say they're not overrated. Let's say they are really rated. Then equally, you could say, well, they should have been a lot bigger then. And there are several reasons, like with all my four, I'm, I'm confident I've got the reasons of, of this band's, band's lack of real success. They had success, albeit quite late in their career. Irish band. Formed in the late sixties, I give you Thin Lizzy. Oh, oh, they were on my overrated bands list. <laughs> well, well, you see, I, but this is the thing. Now, I was like I said, I've often said about that Phil Liner. I mean, I, I don't, I don't. He, yeah, he had some novelty value, and I get that he was a black Irish guy in from that era. He, he had that unique. So by default, by birth, he was unique. Um, but I never. And because of my age, I didn't really know them at the time. So a lot of this is through other people's experiences and reading press and that kind of thing. But, you know, in the, in the early days where Jeff Bell was in the band before Scott Gorham, they, they, they were a working band not getting anywhere, really. They, they weren't making inroads, and that's pretty much why he left. He, he, you know, he, Jeff Bell was, you know, flogging himself. And like, well, I don't really think it's going anywhere. And Jailbreak, was their sixth album. Sixth. And that was what the boys yep. were back in town was on. Mm-hmm. And then, okay. you know, they were obviously, Jelly, yeah, they, you know, they did the Ready Festival, they did Hammersmith and all that, but considering what they were expected to be, it was that album that was going to break them in America. And then Phil Liner got hepatitis and they had to shelve it. And that took them, and, and that amongst one of, was probably one of the contributing factors why they never made it big, big. When I say big, I'm talking playing auditoriums or amphitheaters or maybe even arenas in the US. They did go there, but it was it, it was almost like not a novelty. They went and supported people. I know they played there, I think, with Batman Turner Overdrive or people like that. But they never, it's like they missed the boat. And then you throw in the drug use with all of them, Brian Downey, uh, Scott Gorham was a mess. Phil Linus has been well documented. And it just seemed from that, that point of jailbreak, so 76, it just seems to be one misstep after the other. I mean, I mean, you take the uh, the Chinatown album, which is a great song. In 1980, who in their AR department or anywhere at the label thought releasing Killer on the Loose as a single with him using all these Jack the Ripper references, dressing up as a killer on the loose, while a real ripper in Peter Sutcliffe was terrorizing Yorkshire. So not surprisingly, there was outrage when that came out, even more outrage where Phil Lynott's dressing up as Jack the Ripper. Bearing in mind, this is in real time. They've not caught Peter Sucker. There's a killer, a real... So it's like, mm. who thought that was a good... Probably the same people who thought in 1981 it was a good idea to have a festival called Heavy Metal Holocaust, as if the Holocaust was something to be celebrated. 
Mm. Um, uh, you know, liberal attitudes in the 80s. And then, of course, by 83, John Sykes has joined. It's it's almost a tribute to themselves at this point. Thunder and mm. Lightning came out, and it was and he was dead three years later. But they're a band, I think, if they'd have gone to the States in 76, if they perhaps got a handle on their personal issues a lot sooner, because history tells us that you can have, you can be shit-faced, you can be a drug addict, and you can have a mighty fine career. Reference the Rolling Stones, reference Aerosmith, Motley Crue. You can still be Guns N' Roses. You can be addled by all kinds of problems. and still Richard. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Overdose on aspirin many a times. So, yeah, they're a band that obviously did well, but I think should have been a lot bigger if it wasn't for bad luck with illness mm. and bad timing or bad choosing of releases coupled in with the the persistent alcohol and drug abuse through the 70s and the early 80s. What is, yeah, this that, is I, interesting because you remember that, um, that um, was it the Top Trumps thing that yeah. you did a few years ago? Rock or, Trumps, yeah. Yeah, Rock Trumps. We did that at Christmas one year and we were kind of having a laugh about it and my sister-in-law was getting really fed up because she kept drawing Thin Lizzy. And it was basically because it didn't matter what the metric was that you were assessing against. They always, they always were just a bit shit. And, it, and they didn't, you know, like they didn't sell anywhere near as many albums as you kind of think they should have done with yep. the name that they've got. I mean, I can't remember, was it 15 million or 13? I can't remember. 30, I think it was. And it's funny because when I was putting that together and I had the researchers doing the stats, it was that, I'm thinking, is that it? And I remember thinking, is that what they've done? I'm, and, and that kind of started that, wow, they really are, are they overrated then? Because they've not really, they're not, in, well, for a start, they're not into six numbers. So they've not sold 100 million plus. They weren't huge in the States. And whilst that might not be the be all and the end all, it's still a, you know, when we're talking about bands having big careers, it's a marker. And when you've only got 30 worldwide, you know, you could sell 70 or 80 and still not be big in the US. But it's like, and and when you throw that in, if if you if you're leaning on the side of this as an overrated band, then you could make a solid case for well, in light of the hits they've had and what's happened, then they should have been bigger then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear no. you about Thin Lizzy. I, I get that. I get that completely. Uh, the trouble is that they, that I would say their peak time were probably around seventy six to well. The, the last half of the 70s, I suppose, 76 to 78, 79, maybe. And yeah. I always yeah. almost saw them as a bit of a rival to the band that I really did like, uh, which might raise some eyebrows, I don't know, but it was the Quo. Right. Yeah, they played with and, the Quo. I mean, but they never made it in the States, which is a no. weird a weird thing as well. We've had this discussion a few times before. Maybe it's because they had ZZ Top. I, I don't know, but... Um, yeah, that, that is a major, major bugbear for me. They didn't have any success in the States because I mentioned to Pete South earlier, finest. South London's finest. Should, should the quo go in as, um, you know, should have been bigger than they were, but they were big everywhere else. Well, yeah, but you'd be, States. for quo, yeah, it would just be the States. I mean, I, I, they've sold tens of millions of albums, you know, they, yeah. they are, they can still do arenas. They still, you know, they can still do, it yeah. is just not the States. I think they did mm. a house of blues show there about 18 years ago. Mm. Uh, that was, I think their first time back after 1972, they didn't play there at all. So you're talking nearly 30 years. I mean, it, you're right. They probably, uh, they probably should have had some success in the States. The States is a big place. So having mm, easy top shouldn't, having easy top didn't stop Aerosmith or other no. bands of, of that kind of 
kind of sound. But yeah, they're there. It's a weird one. With Quo, they no no status. Couldn't get arrested in the US. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, come on. You can get arrested in the US for breathing in and out in the wrong way. So they probably could. So, <laughs> as I told my brother before he got on the plane to Chicago. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Moving on, indeed. Okay, so uh, thin Lizzy. So Pete, yeah, on to you. Right, well, this is one that Wyatt and I have talked about before. So if it's not on his list, then um, it probably was in the discussion. So this is the answer. Yeah, it's on mine. Uh, right, okay. Well, in that case, do you want to say... Well, right, well, I'll say what I'm going to say, and then you throw yours in, and we'll, we'll kind of... So they, I, I, when I was looking back on this, I didn't realise they'd been around as long as they have. They, I didn't realize, they, they formed in 2000. Um, but if you look at, like, so 2005... Classic Rock Magazine voted them best new band. Um, they supported Deep Purple at the Astoria. Um, when Rise came out in June 2006, it had critical acclaim in Kerrang. They got Album of the Year nomination and Best British Newcomer. They played festivals supporting Whitesnake. They opened for Aerosmith Hard Rock Calling in 2007. They supported the Stones in Belgrade and Dusseldorf. They supported the Who in Dublin. Jimmy Page and Joe Elliott are both big fans. They opened for ACDC on the Black Ice Tour. They played the Isle of Wight in 2008. They played the live set at the Planet Rock Christmas Party in 2017. Solus is an absolutely brilliant piece of work. So my question is, why aren't they stadium headliners? Over to you. I think this is one of those bad management things and I struggle myself to think why they were given every opportunity as in they were put in front of many thousands of people. You don't get any bigger than I was at that Aerosmith Hyde Park gig and they were great. You know, ACDC. I mean, that's up there. If you're opening for ACDC or the Rolling Stones or Guns N' Roses, you're going to be doing tens of thousands on any night, even just one night. And I, I had that first album. I got it in you know real time. I got it in 2006. I thought, yeah, this is a really good sounding band. And I, and I bought into the hype, you know, they were going to be the emperor's new clothes. This was the, the next big thing. And I thought, okay. Was that where the name, cause my son, Nick, who he was the one who first told me about them. He said, you've got to listen to this band. This rise album's great. And he said that they didn't, they choose the name because they kind of were saying, well, we're the answer to there isn't a free and a Led Zeppelin anymore. I don't know. I've heard that story before. I'm not sure to be honest, but that, that would make sense. Um, but I, I just think, and I don't know. I don't know the actual reason. I can only presume that we know it's they. It's not a case that they weren't playing enough. It wasn't they weren't put in front of the right people. It can only come down to the release schedule, and sometimes maybe they didn't follow up the release or straight away, or maybe they went in a different direction. I, that now they're a glorified pub band. I mean, for a band that never hit the and, and it, it's not like they ever hit the heights of what I would call arena status. They had all those openings. And you're right. Come 2008, 2009, it was like, oh, they, you know, you thought, oh, we headlining Hammersmith. You almost thought they would be where Greta Van Fleet are now. It, and, right. And that's really interesting because they're exactly the band that I would compare them with. And Greta Van Fleet are really doing bits and are going to be yeah. huge, I think. Yeah, yeah. And yet, and they should have been the same. I mean, Cormac's yeah. got a great voice. The guitarist's yeah. a really good guitarist. I just, it, yeah. It, it is a funny one. And it can, it can only be, for me, some kind of management, mismanagement. And that can come, when I say mismanagement, I'm not talking about dodgy managers who are 
laundering all the money and refusing to put them on the road. It can be innocent things like mistiming a release, saying no to a tour they should have said yes to, delaying a release or bringing something out too soon. They are a funny one. And I would imagine Cormac Neese and them are probably scratch their heads about it as well because they've called it a day a few times um, and they've probably got just as disillusioned as as probably fans have because they had everything there for them and I still I, I don't know what went wrong but I, I can only presume it's bad choices or choices you thought were right at the time but with hindsight um, they weren't guilty of having bad management who were stealing from them or mothballing or anything like that I think it was probably bad luck and bad timing because they certainly had the live opportunities. Well, so. I, mean, they, I mean, I didn't realise they played all of these, you know, I didn't realise they'd supported all because I saw them at high voltage in 2010 when they were fairly early on the main stage. They were way down behind, you know, Emerson, Leighton Palmer, who played that year and, and you know, various others. Joe Bonamassa played. Um, Thin Lizzy actually did with um, Ricky Warwick. So yeah. they were they were way below all of that lot, but they did a really good set. And I thought this is a really, really that was the first time I saw them live. I thought these are a really good band. And I Solus is a great I think it's a really good album. I play it a lot. And I don't think there's a duff track on it. But I think I did it on our, you know, 2021st century thing we did, didn't I? I think you did. Yeah. Yeah, I did. And you know, I don't think there's a duff track on that album. It's it's a mystery to me. It really is. It is, but by by that album, they were pretty much done for, and they brought that album out. And they did a co-headlining tour with the Dead Daisies, who uh, still aren't any great shakes in the in in terms of the pond. I mean, they'll they'll sell out or they'll play bigger clubs, and they might they might even be doing like uh, I don't know Shepherds of Bush Empire. But then they were doing like the Garage. I saw them on that tour at the Norwich UEA, and I just thought the Dead Daisies that it was a on that tour alone it was a mismatch. The Dead Daisies are all about the accessible sing-along choruses. The answer went on after them, the Dead Daisies, and, and they opened with Solus. It was all a bit dreary, and it was a bit like, oh, okay, well, this they've just sucked the atmosphere out of this. And I'm thinking, <laughs> when you when you when you throw in everything else, you're thinking, okay, I, I can see why it didn't really kick on because mm. you're not really engaging, and and that was probably a byproduct of that. I mean, like you said, the Sol- Solus is a great song; it is a good album, but I kind of get the feeling that they'll if they keep releasing stuff, that they'll just be doing small clubs. And that, that that's it. They'll Whatever wait. Op- they'll, they'll have a career, but their career is going to be basically Shepherd's Bush Empire downwards. Yeah, I don't even think they do Shepherd's Bush Empire. You're talking probably the garage, I think, unless something amazing happens. And like football, the music industry can surprise you at any given step. I I personally don't see it. I, I, they'll have a career. They'll still churn things out, but then. They're almost like a part-time band. I mean, they're doing yeah. rock stock this year, and I think they've got another album coming out. Cormac does his solo stuff. I don't think, personally, I don't think there's much of an appetite even from the band members to even have a crack here. I honestly <laughs> think they got disillusioned and thought, this ain't, this ain't happening. So It was six years ago, so it was fun. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Nothing nothing since then. Uh, I'm just looking them up, and yeah, they've, they've actually had six... Six albums, five of them making roughly making the top fifty. Uh, the first one, Rise, was probably the least successful, as often maybe it, as often happens, I guess. Rise is a really um, good album, and they did um did they did a, a I, I've got the I've got the original, and then I've also got the special edition because they did a special edition after the Aerosmith 
gig, didn't they? Because they did. Yeah, I've got a special sh- edition. Yeah, right. I've got so, that as well. And that's got Sweet Emotion on it, hasn't it? Yeah. And they, didn't they do that as a single? Yeah, they did. Yeah. Yeah. Everyday Demons was their biggest album, chart wise, anyway. Was that the second one? Was that the that one? Was the second songs? one, yeah. Second one in 2009. The mm. Rise was 2006. Everyday Demons was 2009. Got to number 25. That was the highest they've been. And then Revival. That 25 in the rock charts, presumably. No, no, it's in the UK album charts. Really? Yeah. They've See, all made the album that- charts. That three-year gap might have done for them as well. That's a big old gap when you're a new band. Yeah. You put that up yeah, against I bands mean, from the 60s, 70s, 80s or putting one, two calendar, uh, two albums out in a calendar year. Well, I've, I've got a couple yeah. in my list now who've put, who were putting out two or three a year at one point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And then they had albums out every two years. I think Revival in 2011, New Horizon in 2013 and Raise a Little Hell in 2015. And then, of course, Solace in 2016. That's a quick quick follow-up with their sixth to their fifth album there, wasn't it? Mm. Okay. The answer. Oh, so you've both... the same one a bit. You better go now then, aren't you, Cole? Yeah, all right. I'll throw this one in. I mentioned this one to you earlier because I, I, obviously I'm I'm letting the side down. I am going for ones that I think, <laughs> yeah. Sure, I, I like it. a great so. songwriter. Yeah, right. This guy was, he was born in 1950, keen on the soul music in his late teens, and um, he got together with the manager of the now defunct Brinsley Schwartz, who themselves actually maybe could have been bigger uh, with Nick Lowe, et cetera. Um, and he got this guy, and it's Graham Parker. Graham Parker and the rumour I'm talking about. Um, the manager of uh, Brinsley Schwartz, as was, got uh, recorded um, above in a little studio above the Hope and Anchor pub in Islington. No doubt you're fully aware of this um, venue. One of our preferred venues for pub nights in the 70s. Well, there you go. Probably would have seen Graham Parker maybe there. Uh, uh, anyway. Graham Parker uh, in several times. But, uh, a couple of demo versions. One was uh, Between You and Me was actually used on his debut album uh, in 76, Howling Wind. Um which Nick Lowe produced. Uh, the rumor with the three ex members of you know, other other pub rock bands, Brinsley Swartz, uh, as we've said himself on lead guitar, Bob Andrews on keys, and um, Martin Belmont on guitar, ex Ducks Deluxe. Um, and he, he again, he had minor success in the UK with his albums. Uh, singles, not really a great deal. The first wasn't album Red, didn't sell Red Shoes. at all. Wasn't Red Shoes? Didn't Red Shoes chart? It may have done, but it, it wouldn't have been a massive hit, I wouldn't have thought. I think his, his debut hit was the EP, the Pink Parker EP, yeah. um, which had... Um, do, 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 do. Yeah, Let Me Get Sweet On You. Oh, um, the song by the Tramps. Uh, he covered it, and Hold Back The Night. Oh, yeah. That was actually his first hit. Uh, and then maybe Don't Ask Me Questions was released after that came off of Halloween, but I don't think Red Shoes did. Um, but yeah, uh, as I said, Howling Wind, the first album was a great album. The second album was equally good, um, but it, it didn't sell massively. Howling Wind didn't chart at all. Heat Treatment only made 52 in the UK, um, 169 in the US, 
Uh, and then he had three other albums, just about making the top 20 in the UK. Um, as I said, Pink Parker, yeah, tw- 24, the Pink Parker got uh, the single, the EP. I remember having that on pink vinyl. Had a great live version of First Soul Shoes. In fact, he had a great, you like live albums. Graham Parker and the Rumours Live at the Marble Arch is a great live album. You heard that one? I'll have to look it out. My dealer just got me a copy of uh, one of his albums, Heat Treatment, I think. Well, then RCA dropped him eventually in 91. Um, Capital released one album in 92, but they dropped him after poor sales. Um, And, well, he's still going now. I think his peak period was like in the seventies and I, he was what I was along with the likes. I mean, Dr. Feelgood were around at the same time as well. They, they you, never really. Cause we were talking about Dr. Feelgood as being another band that was a pub band that could have been bigger. Didn't really hit the heights. Did they? I don't know. They didn't. They were, you know, they did what on the Essex circuit. They'd done the old function suite. And it was it all the old Curzel down Curzel. in South end. Curzel. Yeah. And uh, well, they play hotels on Canvey Island, but yeah, they, you can make a case for them because they they had punk influence. They influenced punk as well. They did, you know. So milk and alcohol, and their only big hit, milk and alcohol. That was it. Great. I mean, unusual for a band that their first number one album, their first hit album, was number one, was a live album, which was stupidity. That was bizarre. He'd had Howling Wind and Heat Treatment, and then he had a Stupidity album, and it went to number one. Mm. But they they were a great live band, I guess. Maybe that's why they're not as big. Some of them, they don't have the big hits, and you need the big hits to become big. Yeah. Uh, And I just did the small, as you said, the small circuits might be playing the LSE maybe in London, uh, something like that, perhaps. Um, but anyway, yeah, I'm trying to talk to Feelgood. Another one around that time, which I didn't have, uh, were the Sutherland Brothers and Quiver. These are sort of our um, artists that I was listening to in the mid-70s. I think, yeah, why Why is no one else buying these records? They're just great records. Um, Gavin Sutherland wrote Sailing for Rod Stewart, which is probably one of one of Pete's many hated records, I think, isn't it? It's It would be right up there. It's up there. Yeah. I love yeah. well, I the, the, the Sutherland Brothers and Quiver version. is great, but... Uh... No, Rod Stewart versus. Yeah, but they, they only really had the one, the one hit, which was Arms of Mary, oh, no. which is a great song. But the, the albums leading up to that album, Reach for the Sky, on which that was, um, they had, uh, or Dream Kid, I think uh, Sailing was on Lifeboat, actually. But then they had Dream Kid, Beat on the Street as well. And they were two great albums, yeah. catchy songs. Um, Good musicianship, as I would say, as much as I know about these things. Um, again, probably had reunions with the with with the with the rumor, the original members throughout the ninety, uh, the two thousands, and the, even up to twenty fifteen when that he seemed to have finally hung up his boots. And he was a good songwriter. He was a great songwriter. I think Dave Edmonds uh, had one of his songs as a hit as well. Um, Crawling from the wreckage. That was a, a Graham Parker song. But Graham Parker and the Rumour, not Graham Parsons, as people always seem to confuse him with. No, he, he was, was also yeah. very good, of course. Um, but Graham Parker and the Rumour, for me, is is there. Okay. Right, so if Wyatt's, you've only got one left now, haven't you? That's right, yeah. Right, well, I'll just chuck in one of mine quickly and then we'll do, and do yours. So, Because well, I haven't got much to say. This is, if this thing about um, pub 
pub rock bands and you know you kind of get a favorite pub rock band and you want them to be much bigger than they were so i've got last week or the last time i was on i had my niche thing which was um um matching head and feet by kevin coin i'm a big kevin coin fan um but the um but this one is um the band is meal ticket and they were they basically were between 77 and 1980 and they weirdly they were a country rock pub band so they played on the london pub circuit i saw them at the marquee which was absolutely ideal kind of place for them to play um and they had three albums code of the road in 1977 three times a day in 1977 take away in 1978 all on logo records um i don't know whether they were helped or hindered by the fact that they were referred to by the music press who they had great critical acclaim especially code of the road um but they were referred to as the UK's answer to the band and the Eagles. Um, I think if you kind of get thrown into that category, that's quite a lot to live up to. Um, they were really good musicians. Ray Flax, brilliant guitarist, Willie Finlayson, Rick Jones, Jack Brown and Steve Simpson. Um, and that album, Code of the Road, there's, I mean, the, the standout song, there is a song called Man from Mexico, which everybody should hear once in their life um, because it's the, the vocal harmonies on it are fantastic. Um, and it's a, it's just a really good song. But they're just, I mean, they, they they had a real cult following. My brother's a massive fan of theirs. He, I've, I've just got the other two albums from him because he was having a clear out, and he's got them on vinyl now, so he just gave me the CDs. Um, and um, they, um, I, I think they should, they, they should have been bigger than they were based on their talent, but I recognise that if you're a country rock pub band in London, that's probably limiting your options. So they were my wild card. Have you ever heard of them, Wyatt? No. No, <laughs> neither have I. I was just about to say, this is a band that this I have never deep. heard of. Yeah. Oh, it, okay, um, seriously, there's, there, on the, the album Code of the Road, Man from Mexico and Golden Girl. I think Golden Girl was the single. And they're both beautiful songs. But you can tell they're really, really clever musicians and the vocal harmonies are amazing. I just say that with my vocalist hat on. Anyway, there we go. So I'll throw the ticket in. Should have been bigger. Yeah, that's weird. Never, never <laughs> I'm going to look them up. If you have heard of them. Definitely yeah. going to have to look them up. Yeah. Um, we save your last one. Why are we just oh, going to no, keep no. going? I, I was going to ju- actually, I've been thinking about it. I did sort of think about it a bit more this evening. I've got a couple of honorary mentions. Go on, yeah. I'll just oh, throw we, like, we like honorary we like mentions. Honorary mention. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Okay. George uh, Thorogood and the Destroyers. Ah, yes. I mean, Bad to the Bone is one of the biggest... I mean, that's got to be... Uh, I don't know how you can quantify it, but that's got to have been used on more TV shows and films and adverts than any other song probably in the history of music. Mm-hmm. And maybe, again, maybe it could have been the ZZ Top Factor, but they're a band that had a cult following. I mean, they sold out the what was then the Town and Country Club, now the Kentish Town Forum in London in 95, it was rammed. There was no advertising for it. I mean, this was just before the internet, but I lived in London at the time. We didn't see anything on buses or bus stops, and it was rammed. They had a cult following, could do the clubs and everything, but based on uh, Band to the Bone and all the other stuff, Madison Blues and all that kind of, had a big back catalogue. They should have been up there. They should have been doing the Hammersophonians and the arenas in the 80s. Absolutely. Is it just a good... Who does that song all about not being able to pay the rent? 
Yeah, one bourbon, one scotch, one beer. One bourbon, one scotch, one beer. That's a great song. Yeah, Yeah, Madison Blues as well. Not his, not his. So yeah, I I would put that down to again bad timing. That's it, just a timing thing. Other other factors in play, other bands taking their line, like sort of thing. Why was it bad timing? I'm not talking to you, White. I mean, that's a song. Song of theirs. Get a haircut. Well, when I say yeah, you're right. when I say bad timing, it could just be as something as simple as there was another band in taking their sunlight. It could have been ZZ Top. It could have been an Aerosmith. I don't know enough. That's why it's not already mentioned. I don't know enough about their their history and their background. But I, what I do know from other examples, it can just be someone else got their slice of the pie ahead of them and, and the, the, the public just didn't want to eat anymore. So they kind of got um, overlooked. Yes, I suppose 77 through to what? Mid eighties were they like peak times? I don't know what else would have been around at that time. But yeah, they were yeah, guitarist actually, great slide guitarist, wasn't he? Yeah, great, great blues player and a, and a solo career to boot as well. And the other honorary mention, and I know the answer to this one anyway, would be is a bit left field. Would be screaming Lord Such. Correct. Here is a guy who was a musician first, not pretty much tone deaf, but surrounded himself with the creme de la creme of musicians. If you look on his discography page uh, or the list of band members uh, on the Wikipedia page, you're talking Jimmy Page, you are talking uh, um, the likes, work with Keith Richards on on recordings. It's just a a who's who of musicians. Played at Wembley Stadium in 1972 on the, it was like the Great Rock and Roll Festival with Chuck Berry, Little Richard, but was part-time because he was doing his politics thing. And he would have, I've no, and he was doing, the kind of thing that Alice Cooper and Ozzy Osbourne were doing after. I don't know if he was a direct influence on them, but he was doing that kind of coffins, makeup, blood, candles, early versions of pyro, if you will, long before Alice Cooper was doing it. Mm. Influenced people like um, Jack White, the White Stripes, covered his big hit, Jack the Ripper, started using coffins. So he was really influential, but because he only did it part-time pretty much in the mid-70s, he was a novelty act by the seventies and never got beyond uh, you'd be doing, you're talking working men club circuits and functions. All right. I, I did play a few of the kind of review shows, which were bigger, like, I don't know, the best of the star club Hamburg, where you would get the swinging blue jeans and um, all people of those ilk, Herman and the hermits yeah. hermits. So you'd be doing them, but, but you know, by the eighties, nineties, it was a novelty act, but if you'd have just focused on the music for longer, because of the talent he surrounded himself with, should have been and could well have been bigger. I mean, he played Wembley Stadium, for goodness sake, mm-hmm. in 1972. Well, that's, that's pretty big. <laughs> yeah, so he was on that bill. He wasn't the opening act. He was like third or fourth on. Cliff Richard was below him, if I remember rightly. Well, so, in well, that would be a good well, That's another yeah. story, yeah. Okay. yeah. So, yeah, they, they, they were my two honorary mentions. Um, yeah, did I not read that you... Did you play drums with Screaming? I Outside? did. I, I bookended it. So my dad was there at the start in the uh, early days. Uh, Richie Blackmore was his main guitarist. So Richie Blackmore, my dad, was his guitarist pre-Deep Purple. Jimmy Page had done stuff. I mean, I, I, it really is a who's who. I forget there's people from Deep Purple on his discography. Then my mum was with him for years. And then I bookended it by joining him in the mid-90s up until he died. But even then, it was, it was a part-time thing. He was tight as hell with money. He would rather drive all the way up to Newcastle from London and pay a pickup band rather than pay his actual musicians to travel up, to there. up there. With him. Yeah, but if he was doing a big show like we did in uh, Hamburg, where it was a big review and it was like playing a convention centre, 
like one of these huge auditoriums, which is like attached to the hotel. So it's like, a, I don't know, a holiday inn with an ensuite venue. Then he'd take <laughs> the band over because he was on the big bucks for that. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, realize, I knew your dad was with him. I didn't realize your mum had, had played with him as well. Yeah, it was it was a family thing. And um, yeah, I, when I joined in 95, I joined, and this was just so Dave sucks. I was doing Butlins, Butlins Bogner. I think that's still one of the, the venues for, you know, these 70s throwback shows. And even in 1995, it was a big deal. I had no rehearsals. It was learned from this tape. It was a dodgy C90 tape. It was literally <laughs> recording rehearsals in the corner. I was like taking all my cues in the bass player. Thank God they didn't tell me how big Butlins was where I got there. I would have, I would have bailed out. I got there with 10,000 people. <laughs> people said what it was like. I said, imagine Wembley Arena, but someone had flattened it and made it just one massive floor. It, it just seemed to be that far back and that far wide. And it was 10,000 people. I'm like, this is my debut. Wow. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Way to go. Way to reading go. About, I'm just reading about, yeah, he died in 1999. Yeah. But in between um, all these big shows, he'd be doing like Harrow Cricket Club and, and these sort of nothing. People would offer him a few hundred quid to turn up. We'd, we'd be doing like the railway in uh, Harrow on the Hill pubs. <laughs> and then and then he'd go out and, you know, play on part of these bills. Be planted. When we were in Hamburg, there was about 3,000 people there. Butler's had 10,000. And he was always right near the top of the bill as well. Well, so, he's a name, isn't he? Yeah. You know? I remember playing the Great British Rock and Roll Festival. I remember this because I remember I was. I was 21 and it was the Great British Rock and Roll Festival. It was a field just near Milton Keynes and there was all the usual terms. It was an outdoor thing, like a mini download, but for but for uh, acts from the 60s and the 70s. And Marty Wilde, Kim's dad, was headlining. And we always mm. opened with Roll Over, Bait Over. Yep. And uh, Marty Wilde, it emerged about half we went on, that Marty Wilde had had it inserted into his contract that no one else could play Roll Over, Bait Over. I'm like, oh, no. So like... But there was this big, oh, I don't know if we can do it. I just fuck them. Just play it. It's a cover. Yeah, yeah. Tape. <laughs> and I was adamant that we were going to go out there. I was 20 at the time. I was like, and I'm telling these 50-year-old musicians, or 40 as they were, 45, I'm like, fuck this guy with his stupid, shitty coats. Look like, you know, a really bad shaking Steve. <laughs> I was, I was, and it wasn't, it wasn't pretend. I was like, no, fuck this guy. We always play that. It's a cover version. Has he got the right? <laughs> And in the end, it was like, yeah, but they probably won't pay us. So we had to drop it. I remember being so pissed off. I'm like, how mm-hmm. dare he? Who does he think he is? It's not even his song. No. But yeah, that was, but that, again, that was another eight, 9,000, 8,000 gig. And, and my other memory of that gig, sorry, I'm sidetracking a bit, is no, I carry on. Because I was young and, and not that experienced in touring or gigging, I'd forgotten the simple things such as taking a bottle or a glass of water on stage with me. And I couldn't, for love nor money, find one. So there was a car nearby, and I just got this. I'm guessing it used to have um, um, antifreeze. So emptied out. So I go on with this like this gallon bottle of water, so I just plunked <laughs> it down. And I remember my snare drum head broke. And I remember saying, "Because you had, you know, you had stage stage hands and whatever." And I was trying to tell them, "I'll get through this song and to change it at the end of the song." And I just remember going to hit the snare and it wasn't there. They literally came on and were changing while I was in the middle of the song. I'm thinking, what kind of amateur outfit is this? I'm like, what are you doing? I only had one snare at the time. This water's gone everywhere. There's a gallon of water <laughs> all over the floor. I'm thinking, I'm telling you not to change it now. Who changes a drum in the middle of us anyway? So, yeah, that was probably the last time I ever played a gig topless. 
because I was you know, <laughs> young and slim. It was July 1996. And that, that, that was probably one of the, what, no, it was, yeah, it was one of the, the biggest gigs we did. Special guest technically to Marty Bloody Wild. You couldn't, and you couldn't do roll over Beethoven. Couldn't do roll over Beethoven because of him. Right. You couldn't do your Marty McFly. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but your kids are going to love it. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Right, yeah. Then, oh, yeah, that's not going to mean anything to Pete because he's never seen. Can't believe he's never seen Back to the Future. I still can't believe yeah, that. I haven't. I did. Tell me, you've seen Back to the Future, Wyatt? Yeah, I've seen all three of them. All three. It's I've seen them. Obviously, easy top in it and the double backs. Obviously, the big part of the. Part three soundtrack, yeah. and they appear in it themselves, playing a, gru- uh, a bluegrass yeah, version in, of the in, in original the, in their Wild West. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, in the Old West. Yeah. If it yeah. helps, I worked at the DeLorean factory. Anyway, there we go. I know. <laughs> Moving on. It's not the same. Right, it's gone. What have you got, Cole? Give us another. Well, one. I've travelled in time. So, I've travelled so, in time. So, what you've got one more left? Those were your two. Well, yeah, yeah so two, two honorees. Yeah, right. We'll, right, we'll okay. come so on to White's last one. I've got one of mine. I'll just, I'll just throw in a couple of others. You could call them wild cards, anyway. But again, I could have thrown this one in earlier with the Southern Brothers and Quiver, with the Doctor Feelgood, with the Graham Parker, um, a, a duo, who again, I, I hesitate to say that there was a Beatle connection again, Pete. <laughs> But they were uh, originally signed as the as uh, songwriters for Apple Records artists in the late sixties. Um, in fact, in nineteen sixty eight, and their names were Benny Gallagher and Graham Lyle. Okay, um, they they formed McGuinness Flint with um, Tom McGuinness and Bernie Flint. Um, McGuinness being from Manfred Mann, of course, and uh, Bernie Flint from I think John Mayles drummer. Uh, they had a couple of hit singles, both written by Gallagher and Lyle. Uh, when I'm Dead and Gone, which has been covered by a few people, um, and uh, Malton Barley Blues, which is another they're both top five hits, I think, for McGuinness Flint. Um, and then uh, they embarked, I say a solo career, but they were a duo, of course, if you get my drift, um, as Gallagher and Lyle, which is who I'm choosing, of course. Um, but they did also back uh, Ronnie Lane in Slim Chance as well. So the How Come single in 74, 75 time was, was them. Um, I mean, um, Graham Lyle, uh, Benny Gallagher was a multi-instrumentalist. Well, they both were really but Benny Gallagher was probably the more so. And they had a number of solo duo albums. I don't know what to call it, really, but obviously Gallagher and Lyle, Willie and the, the Lapdog, Seeds, and The Last Cowboy, and none of which really were, were successful at all. They should have been. I mean, I had certainly Seeds and The Last Cowboy albums, um, but they really made it sort of big. They had a big hit with their next album, which was Breakaway. Ah. Uh. Right, okay. They had a couple of hit singles with that heart sing? on my sleeve. Right. Uh, I want to stay with you. Um, were, were reasonable hits, both top ten in the UK, even minor in the US. Uh, and then Breakaway, the title track, was also a top forty hit. And finally, I think Every Little Teardrop was another hit, but again, not massive. Um, they just had they're great songwriters, and I mean they've had songwrite songs recorded by. I do one of your lists here, Pete. Brian Ferry, Colin Blundstone, Donovan, Elkie Brooks, Fairport Convention, Judith Durham, Phil Everly, Ringo Starr, Status Quo. 
Jim Capaldi and Art Garfunkel. Of course, Art Garfunkel had a breakaway album. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Gallagher and Lyle song. In yeah. fact, at the Simon and Gar- Garfunkel, I should stand up for the with the T-shirts. There is a sort of Simon and Garfunkel link. Well, their reunion concert at the Central Park in New York in 82, uh, they sang, or rather Art Garfunkel sang, uh, a, a Gallagher and Lyle song at that set. It was called A Heart in New York, which, of course, got all the, the crowd cheering when they talked about looking down on Central Park. Big cheer. Uh, and Graham Lyle actually went on to write songs with other um, songwriters, partners, if you like. Um, Our Love, Elkie Brooks, was, was one of his. Um, and two massive hits with, for, with Terry Britton for Tina Turner. Uh, and they were What's Love Got to Do With It and the the Thunderdome theme, uh, We Don't Need Another Hero, uh, and also I Don't Want to Lose You, which is another big Tina Turner hit, which he wrote with Albert Hammond. But as, as a duo, I just think they should have, you know, it's been better, but I suppose there are reasons. They just were good songwriters, and maybe they work better recording or writing songs for other people. They could have been kind of like a British version of Simon and Garfunkel, couldn't they? Yeah. They could have been. Yeah, similar, similar kind of sound. Definitely could have been. Um, I'm going to throw another one in quickly then. Uh, What time are we doing for time? Maybe another 10, 15. Um, In the 90s, one of your favourite eras, uh, Pete. Yeah, I'm really big in the 90s. It's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't like the 90s. You're a big 90s man. Of course he is. Well, well, yeah, I've uh, I, I've said that the uh, I've done things on the I've done a podcast on the night. It's been over, the most overlooked uh, era from a UK point of view. Very quickly, this that decade gave us more music movements than than any other decade. You had at the start, you had grunge, mm-hmm. you had uh, Brit rock, mm-hmm. which was you know Skunk and Nancy, Reef, the Almighty, all these kind of bands, and at the end we had new metal. Doesn't matter if it was not. Everyone's cup of tea, but Marilyn right. Manson, Corn, all that, that came in the 90s. So we got three mm. groundbreaking musical movements in one decade. No other decade gave us three. So the nine, but, but, but very quick, I would say that coincides with a lot of heritage bands putting out duff albums because they changed key members, ACDC, Motley Crue, some big names, not just them, there were others. Iron Maiden released albums with new members and they bombed. Most of the bombs mm-hmm. were in the nineties, so yeah, because of that, everything else kind of falls by the wayside. But yeah, I'm okay. I'm good with the nineties. Well, uh, this band, I think that a stack actually a stack of albums. Uh, they actually had about eleven albums. They're still going, um, but not again. It's sort of a band from that era that that people will say who you know they don't. I mean, I'm, Pete will be one of them. I'm sure if if I haven't mentioned them before to him. And he still might say who because he might have forgotten about it. Um, I might just say deliberate. <laughs> this work was Scottish. Uh, she formed in 1989. Um, and I would say alternative rock, alt rock, and power pop sort of scene to it. Sounds reminiscent of the Beach Boys and the Birds. Um, and uh, maybe Big Star. Oh, Big Star. That's another one. Do you know Big Star? Big, big, should have been bigger with. Um, I'm trying to think of the name of the guy, the singer, but he was also the singer on um, the box tops, big hit, the letter, which Joe Cocker covered. You probably know the Joe Cocker cover, Pete. I um, 
Oh, the names escape me. Um, but anyway, um, in fact, Kurt Cobain regularly called them the best band in the world. Now that's uh, that's something, isn't it? Um, Grand Prix and Songs from Northern Britain were probably their biggest albums. Three of their eleven albums were top ten. Um, but singles, the highest they got was number seventeen. Now the band is Teenage Fan Club. All right. Yeah. Um, so I say, despite the number of hits albums or albums they've had, or actually even hit singles, they've had hit singles, but not massive. So seventeen was the highest out of ooh, thirty-five singles. Um, um, but yeah. I just, I just think they're a, a great band, underrated. One of those underrated bands. I might even have included them in the underrated. I think were you did. No, so no, they, they, was, they, they were both underrated and not as successful as they should have been. Yeah. Well, there you go. So that's right. Teenage Fan Club. Um, I, okay. I love them. Dig them out. Dig them out. Well, I've got, I've got a couple left. I wonder whether my fourth, my, fi- my final one might be the same one as Wyatt's fourth one. So we'll see. Um, so shall I throw my next one? In? You, you would since you've mentioned. The Beatles literally a hundred times in this podcast, one way or the other. I'm I've got to have a slice of not prog. exaggeration. No, it's not an exaggeration at all. So I'm having a slice of prog, and I am going with Greenslade, who were autumn 1972, and they broke all the rules because basically they didn't have a guitarist. They had two keyboards. So they were the ultimate prog band because they were as widdly as it's possible to get. Um, so Green Slade on keys, Tony Reeves on bass, Dave Lawson on keys, Annie McCulloch on drums. Tony Reeves and Dave Greenslade were both in Coliseum. And in a later version, John Heisman joined them um, when um, when Dave Greenslade went solo. Annie McCulloch was ex-King Crimson. Um they, on 20th of February, 73, they played the old grey whistle test, two numbers from Bedside Manners and Extra. Uh, they only did four albums. They had, uh, the Green Slade was a self-titled starter, then Bedside Manners, then Spyglass Guest in 74, Time and Tide in 75. Spyglass Guest was the most commercially successful, got to number 34 in the UK. Um, and um, that was the one where they did their version of Theme from an Imaginary Western, which was a... Jack Bruce and Pete Brown song, um, but obviously that was a that was a big hit for Mountain, wasn't it? Theme from Imaginary Western. That's that gets played on the radio quite a lot. Um, not the Green Slade version, and they disbanded in '76 due to quote unquote managerial problems um, with Gaff management, and basically Dave Green Slade split the band up in order to escape from the management because they said, "Yeah, you can." buy yourself out of your contract. And he said, no, we'll just stop. So they stopped. Um, and I always think, you know, I know prog is my thing. Not my only thing, but it's my favourite thing. Um, you kept that quiet, Pete. I did. I, I don't make that. I don't mention that very often. But uh, there's, they, they're they a really good band. All four of those albums are good. Spyglass Guest is the best one. Um, and I just think that they are one of those bands which... There was no reason why they couldn't have been a yes or an ELP or a caravan or a or a camel, but for some reason they weren't, and I never really understood why because they were really good musicians. So anyway, that's my number five, Greenslade. So you're thinking that Wyatt would have had them? No, I'm thinking Wyatt might have my number six. But anyway, oh, okay. we'll see. Fair enough. 
Well, right, what is so, your number six then? Oh, is it? No, no, you say what? No, you say what yours is, and I'll tell you if it's the same one. Okay. Is it a Texas trio? No, it's not a Texas trio. Oh, so it's not then. It's not then. All right, we're all. So my, mine are the, the cliche of uh, of become the cliche of underrated bands. Bands should have been bigger because they're so widely commented on as as they should have been bigger. And there were several probable reasons for this. They are a Texan trio that got together in the early 80s. They were a form of prog in a way, but not prog. Maybe that was what did for them. Their first album came out in 88. They were massively influenced. They're one of those that the critics loved it. They influenced Alice in Chains. There would be no Alice in Chains without this band. They were massive influence on the grunge movement. Can't get down. Um <laughs> Is that the same one as we had behind you? No, it's a different one. (laughs) And for various reasons, they never hit the big time. It is King's X. Ah, okay. Yeah, so King's X come along in the late 80s. Now, they had a manager called Sam Taylor, and I don't know the ins and outs of it, but they had a really acrimonious split. So on one hand, you could say bad management. But they were playing. They played with ACDC on the Razor's Edge tour. That's the album with Thunderstruck on it. They uh, also uh, they had some other big tours. Oh, and Ryan Maiden as well on the No Prayer for the Dying tour, which is Fear of the Dark and all that. So they were, you know, they were put in place. They got a major deal in the early nineties. They went to Atlantic, but they just couldn't do the numbers. They got some plays on air uh, on MTV. But by their, their third album in 96, it was like, okay, this ain't happening. So Atlantic dropped them. And then they went to, um, I think it was Metal Blade, I think a German label. And they just progressively started churning out albums every couple of years. And they've got, they're, they're touring, they're doing a 40th anniversary tour this September. And they're playing some decent venues. But they are considered to be one of the most underrated and always featuring conversations with rock fans of bands that should have been bigger to the point the band probably nearly always get asked that in any interview. <laughs> now it could have been that they were too different. It could have been a bit too alien for people. If that wasn't, when you listen to it now, you listen to their 1988 album. It's ahead of its time. It would sit well in the nineties or whatever, but it's not like they're doing things in six, seven timing and there's five, 15 keyboards. It's not like prog prog. They're three minute songs of choruses and so on. And even when they brought out their 1993 album, when they were doing grunge, they were doing grunge better than a lot of grunge bands at the time. And that dog, the Dogman album didn't do anything big for them. And they were wrongly labeled as a, a religious band. And even I thought they were because I bought into the, uh, the hype that, that they were some kind of striper band where they were preaching God at every opportunity. And it just wasn't the case. It, they had a singer who had a faith, but he was also very balanced. He would write songs about the the the, uh, the preacher man who would be trying to rip you off. He doesn't care about you. He just wants your money. As yeah. equally as he'd be saying, I'm having a dark day and only one person can save me. And he's referring to God. So there was always great balance in the lyrics. It wasn't like Striper, cheesy, holding a Bible, God is great. It was none of that bullshit. Uh, also, a gay black man as a stinger. I mean, this is 2022. What does that mean to us now? Nothing, or it shouldn't mm-hmm. do. No. Go back to the 80s, a gay black man leading a band the fact of the matter is that would have made Americans nervous. It just would. And, mm. and I think that even Doug Pinnock, the singer of the band would concede that probably had something to do with them not being embraced in alongside the fact that they were mismanaged because they had a huge split acrimonious split. And I'm sure it came down to money, bad decisions. So they're a band that 
don't just take my word for it. The rock community en masse all agree that this is the one thing that no one could get to the bottom of. Why weren't King's X massive? Because they transcended glam, grunge. They rolled with the times. They would have fit in with the, the Guns N' Roses kind of music. They fit in with grunge in the 90s. And they were contemporary enough to still be relevant through the late 90s into the new millennium. But by the new millennium, they were a, not a novelty act. They were a cult band. And they're still a cult band. And they'll pack out where the place that they're playing at home first picture dome near me. It'll be packed. Um, but that that that's ship sailed years ago. They didn't get the major mm. deal. They didn't shift the big units. They didn't do the arenas. And no one knows why. Even them. What's their big what what's their biggest song? Because I mean I know I know of them, but I don't know any of their stuff at all. Well, this is it that they didn't really have big songs. They also featured on the Bill and Ted soundtracks. They had a song on that, so they got soundtrack. Um Oh, what was it called? It's Love is a big song. Dogman. Junior's, Junior's Gone Wild. was in Junior's Gone Wild, which was never, they never really Bill play it live, but that, that got them the plays. So it's Love, uh, The that, Mission. That a, yeah, that was their biggest, you, it's only in the US rock charts and no hits in the, on the billboard. Um, you got It's Love uh, was number six. Black Flag was 17. Black Flag. Um, yeah. Dogman itself was 20. Uh, and finally, uh, in 2005, there's a double A side. It looks like If and Alone. And that was from yeah. the Ogre Tones album. Yeah. So they had lots of singles, but nothing really impacted. That's despite playing of ACDC, I made them yeah. being on MTV, being part of a soundtrack to a huge film in Bill and Ted's. It is just this weird thing that no one can put their finger on. And I'm I sure the band fell up that. again and asked that. Yeah. I had another 20, 20 research, singles. Yeah. That didn't chart at all. Yeah, sorry, Pete. I'm... No, I was just saying I'm going to have to do some research in the same way that oh, you've got a meal yeah. ticket. I don't know anything about King's X. Well, I mean, I know of them, but I don't know anything. So I'm going to have to. No, you have to look you might up. have to look up Teenage Fan Club as well. I've done, I, might, I might. Well, and the Flaming Groovies. No, it's oh, and, and, the, and the other thing. Sorry, the other side point worth mentioning on King's X, especially that they were influenced by the Beatles. So it's all three part harmonies. It's, whereas if you're in a harmonious band, you either sound usually like Queen or the Beatles. Extreme sounding more like Queen. King's X clearly had the Beatles and the ELO influence, but they had a bass player, a groundbreaking bass player and a phenomenal guitarist who you would feature on the covers of bass player magazine or their equipment was, you know, often sought after in a way that dream theater fans want to know what they use. You had a bass player who would play a six string bass, sometimes even a 12 string bass, which seems a little gratuitous and a little pretentious, but I digress. And you, all of them sang lead vocals as well as doing them with the harmony. So they were, it wasn't just, we're just doing some songs. We're not very good. No one's bored. They were phenomenal, still are phenomenal musicians mm. um, who were revered in their communities, their musical communities by guitarists and bass players. But again, that just adds to the strand of how on earth did they not hit the big, big time? They've had a career, but not a massive career. I'm pretty no. sure one of them, or at least two of them, have had day jobs in the last 20 or 30 years. Mm. Right, King Sexton, oh, yeah. Okay. I'm going to have to do some King's X research. Right, shall I throw my last one in then? This is okay, uh, one that uh, this is one that Wyatt and I talked about earlier. Uh, so this is Merthyr Tidville's finest. Um, <laughs> if if you can put those two things in the same sentence, that is man. Now we are that onto is, man, aren't is, we? That is man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not man, this is. Um, I, I absolutely love man. Um, and um, you know, classic lineup: Mickey Jones, Deke Leonard, Martin Ace, and Terry Williams. Um, <laughs> Their statistics are amazing. Now, bearing in mind that this is a band that is basically a cult band. And, I mean, they, they have got an absolute cult following. They, I was doing the research. They released 
423 records on 75 labels in 24 countries and have had 23 members in the band. <laughs> they are just insane numbers. Man, that's bad. Yeah, man, yeah, exactly. And um, they, um, they, um, they were on Pi, so they played support in Chicago. Um, they came back in 1971 when they blew Soft Machine, Yes, and Family off the stage in Berlin. Um, and that was when they were uh, promoting two ounces of plastic with a hole, uh, which is uh, a great name. For they, they, I love them because they have all these kind of weird um, titles. Um, so, But the interesting thing is that they're always well-reviewed. So, like, do you like it here now? The critics loved it. Um, be good to yourself. The critics loved it. They also do some weird stuff. So, like, Live at the Paget Rooms in Penarth, which was released in 1972, they only pressed 8,000 copies, and they sold in a week. And so it was number one in the budget albums charts because it was sold cheap, and they only printed 8,000. The net result of that is that if you can get a pristine copy of Live at the Paget Rooms, it's worth a bloody fortune. Um, and then they did Christmas at the Patty, which was a double... 10 inch album really helpful because like you've either got seven or 12 so the 10 inch album um and that again was number one in the budget album charts i guess their two big albums or the three big albums were rhinos winos and lunatic and slow motion which were both 1974 uh what rhinos and winos got to number 24 um and then the one that which is the one i've kind of got and play the most is their live well, the original Farewell album, which was Maximum Darkness, which was released in 75 or 6, and that got to number 25 in the UK charts. And I just think they're one of those bands who they've got a cult following. Man, fan I saw them live at Harlow Park, at the Harlow Free mm -hmm. Concert, which was tremendous. Um, and um, they've, they're still going. They're, uh, they've been based in Germany since 2011, um, and, they, so, and they still play regularly over there. Um, and they, um, yeah, they just, they've always had a cult following. And I guess, I mean, I don't know what you think, Wyatt, but probably Budgie and the Alarm would fall into this category as well. There's kind of a Welsh thing going on there. Yeah. Um, but, um, and, you know, we laugh about it. You know, there's always this thing, you know, what's the greatest rock riff of all time and all the rest of it. I think it's man, or at least it's Deke Leonard. Um, 7171551, which is, um, uh, why is that called that? Because it was Mike Nesmith's phone number. Quite why we had, he had to have Mike Nesmith's phone number from the monkeys, I don't know. Um, but that's an absolutely brilliant riff. And on Maximum Darkness, it kind of is this 11-minute thing. And they've got this big reputation for basically being a jamming band. So they're kind of like the Welsh version of the Ormond Brothers in that they take a song and it ends up being 24 minutes when it was originally two. Um and, and it kind of, you know, you either love or hate that. I happen to like it. So um, I always I always thought that they should have been much, much bigger. They should have been a stadium band because they were certainly good enough. Uh, not stadiums, but, you know, like the SSE Arena and places like that. Um, but, yeah, they kind of never were. And um, it's always been a mystery to me because if you listen to their album, you know, listen to their back catalogue, they're a really good band. So, yeah, they're my, they're my last ones. Man, okay. Um, and I 
strangely have a bit of a link between that because I, I was just reading a bit about a man and that they evolved out of a band called the Bystanders. They did, yeah, in nineteen the early sixties. They were a close vocal harmony group. Yeah, one of the um, hits that they had was Jessamine. Or when yes, that's when right. Jessamine goes, I think. Yeah, yeah. which was co-written, funny enough, by Marty Wilde. It was. Wilde's <laughs> <laughs> favourite. Why well, there's no sample of rollover Beethoven in it, certainly no, by no one else. <laughs> also, that it links to my last one, which is a bit of a cheat because the drummer for man, I'm just reading, um, maybe one of many drummers that they had, perhaps but literally but Terry, many. Terry Williams, yeah, Terry Williams, yeah, okay. Yeah. Now, so he was in the original man lineup, he was one of the, my, one of the original ones. My last one, it says, a bit of a cheat. Good rock and roll band, probably from 1976 to 1981 were their peak times. Pub rock should have been if only they didn't release loads of other, loads of albums and singles um, individually as solo artists along the way, and they could have just brought them all together and had them released. And the, and the band I'm talking about is Rock Pile. Is that Dave okay. Edmonds? It's Dave Edmonds. I mean, Terry Williams is also in uh, Love Sculpture, I think, with Sabre Dance with Dave Edmonds. Um, And they had an album called, uh, Dave Edmonds had an album called Rock Pile. That's where they got the name for Rock Pile, I guess. Um, So it's a a great lineup of Dave Edmonds in the peak. Dave Edmonds, Nick Lowe, Billy Bremner, not not Leeds Billy Bremner, um, but another (laughs) Billy Bremner. And, of course, Terry Williams. Um, And they they actually recorded... um, well, they actually recorded rough material for about five albums, but they only released one as Rockpile uh, when, I suppose, contracts had expired with whoever it might have been, Swan Song for Dave Edmonds and also Nick Lowe, because they had they also recorded um, as a band the Dave Edmonds albums, uh, Tracks on Wax 4, Repeat When Necessary and Twangin', and also released as Rockpile, well, as Nick Lowe, was the Labour of Lust album, which is a solo Nick Lowe album, but it was Rockpile. Um, and scattered Rockpile tracks can be found on other Nick Lowe and, and Dave Edmonds solo albums as well. Um, and, I mean, they served as a backing band for uh, Mickey Jupp and Carleen Carter as well. Um, and, well, Get It was a good album, a great album as well. Uh, but finally, Seconds of Pleasure was the only album. It was released in 1980. Uh, Teacher Teacher was a minor US hit from that as a single. Uh, in 81, though, Dave Edmonds and Nick Lowe had a bit of a, a falling out, and that led to the dissolution of the uh, of the band. Dave Edmonds blaming his displeasure at the band's manager at the time, Jake Riviera, managerial issues. The album actually made 34 in the UK and 27 in the US. And the single Teacher Teacher made 51 in the US as well. But I think they, they could have been they could have been huge. They were a great little band, Rock Pile. Um, but they, they released all these, like, you know, massive hits. I mean, Dave yeah. Evans, The Girls Talk, A Queen of Hearts, Nick Lowe had Cruel to Be Kind. They were all Rock Pile, but they weren't released as Rock Pile. Didn't Nick Lowe play with... Um... Nick Lowe played with um, Elvis Costello as well, didn't he? Nick Lowe, we certainly produced. Yeah. yeah, did he play? He might have played. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think I Elvis think Costello recorded what's what's so funny about Peace, Love and Understanding, and yeah. that was released as a B-side of a of a Nick Lowe 
single early on, wasn't it? But he certainly produced them. Um, well, that's that's my last one there, but I could mention so many more, but we're going to run out of time. We probably have already, to be honest. The Boys is an, as an, as a band, a power punk, power pop punk band. They were the first punk band, UK punk band. At one point, they were the only British punk band to have a record deal in January 1977, since the Sex Pistols have been sacked from E&I at uh, the very start of that year. And uh, the Datton, not the Datton, yeah, the Datton had um, just one single only deal with Stiff for New Rose, and that was back in October. So they had the only uh, album, the only record deal. Were the Sex Pistols fine from EMI because they were just a little bit shit and because um, the lead singer supported Arsenal? Um, they were fired. I think they were causing a little bit of a, a, a little bit of trouble. I think Bill Grundy had a lot to, has a lot to answer for for that. For inciting them on his live TV uh, magazine show, whatever they were called in those days, uh, on Thames Television. Thames um, Television. Oh, God. So this the old 97s I've got written down, but and a, a singer that should really be, but unfortunately, she died when she was only about 33. I know never knew Eva Cassidy. Eva Cassidy, yeah. Should I mean she's probably got one of the it's one of my personal favorite female yeah. voices. Along with Karen we talked, Carpenter. We talked about her when we did the female singers, didn't we? We did indeed. Uh now I did as we uh I've got a couple of people that have message me uh, graham's got a, a list of them um uh, two people Rhonda and barbie have both gone for this is a band like we saying quo never really made it out they made it out of the uk but they didn't really make it out of the uh, into the us uh is the michael stanley band from cleveland actually cbw's area um who were massive absolutely massive i mean there was a real not that uproar is the right right word but there was a real um, collective grief shown when I think he passed away last year. Um, and he he never really made it big out of Ohio, it would appear. He didn't really have massive hits in the US. Um, but he could have done. I mean, he was, I, I was reading a little bit about it. I was provided with a little bit of info. Um, he was emphasizing a bit of the negativity of the Cleveland area, which probably didn't, didn't go down too well. But then again, Springsteen probably did the same about New Jersey or whatever, and he's you know he's made a career out of it. Um, okay, I've got a, a list here. I'll just run through the list from Graham. Trust the old Graham. Talk, talk. Tinder sticks. Big star. Yeah, you know, I mentioned them earlier. Pixies. Little feet. I would agree with that one. Yeah, they probably could have been bigger than they were. Ramones. I mean, that, that's a massive cult band, but they didn't really have any commercial success, did they? Unless you um, said T-shirts. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> the people that had never heard of the Ramones. And a Prefab Sprout, Grateful Dead, another one of those bands that made it didn't really make it big out of the US, I would say, did they? I mean, they weren't. Well, really I mean, big Grateful here. Dead are the ultimate cult band, aren't they? Yeah, I would say. And the other two punks, really, uh, Velvet Underground, uh, obviously with Lou Reed, and uh, the Stooges with uh, Iggy Pop. 
such a sound a sound uh, list that he's given us there. Right, okay. I suppose we better end because we're we're coming up for coming up for two hours. Good grief. Okay. Uh, well, thank you very much, Pete. Thank you very much, Wyatt, for joining us. Been great fun, yes. educational. Uh, yes. You want to give us any plug or anything? You want to just listen to the radio, listen to me on the radio, listen to me on Planet Rock, and go and buy the Black Spiders album because that's the band I'm in. So I need a. Pension. You've got an album now, the Black Spiders band, yeah. Well, the, the Black Spiders have got several albums, but there's the third album I'm on, and there's a fourth album imminent, and I'm on that Excellent. as well. Excellent. Okay, everyone's look out for the Black Spiders. Pete, got an album coming out? Uh, no, no, I haven't. Strangely, although I'm working on it, I might uh, when I get my misses sorted out. Then uh, I'm hoping I can get her to do something finally. Actually, we just put a new single of hers on YouTube today, so I'll um, I'll send you the link later. You okay, thank you very much. Tell um, me. Okay, so yeah, thanks. Why? Hopefully, you can come back come back anytime. Actually, we'll, we'll lovely. Some other stuff. Definitely want a drumming one. Yeah, I'll be up for that. No worries. We'll be up for that. Yeah, I'll, I'll stop you. Stay quiet for that one. I said, well, I like him as a drummer. <laughs> I don't know whether they're any good or not. Anyway, so yeah, in the meantime, uh, this, this podcast will be posted to Anchor, Spotify, um, Apple Podcasts, and, and any to a podcast near you. So your favourite podcast forum, whatever it is, I'm sure it'll be there, uh, hopefully by the weekend. And uh, yeah, so in the meantime, it's, uh, it's a good night from me. And it's a good night from him. And good night for me. Thank you very Not much. Off. Not off. <laughs> Not off. 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 Not off